Hello and welcome along to another episode of the Greenlight Podcast from Active Consent. In this podcast, we explore how consent, sexual violence and relationships are depicted in and shaped by pop culture, from Hollywood to TV shows to music. And today we are back with all three hosts, including myself, Caroline West, Charlotte MacIver. Charlotte, how are you today? Doing great. Fabulous, fabulous. And we have Alex Black with us today as well. Hello, Charlotte. Or hello, Charlotte and Caroline. Oh, thanks very much, Alex. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So today we are absolutely delighted to be joined by legendary and multi-award winning director Lenny Abrahamson, whose work includes Normal People, Room, Adam and Paul and the just released Conversations with Friends, which we cannot wait to binge. And you can find this from the 18th of May on RTE or some other um, services if you're in the UK. Lenny, how are you? Thank you so much for joining us today. Pleasure to be here, Caroline. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Amel. You're a busy bee. Yeah, it's been it's been a it's always a bit busy coming up to the release of something. So yeah, I'm sick of the sound of my own voice. Well, we aren't, so that's okay. Oh, that's good. <laughs> yeah. And so one of the main things, Lenny, that we're so lucky to have you. Just- talk about today is obviously the release of conversations with friends but um so one thing that the kind of main message of this podcast is talking about how kind of how pop culture and visual media and that kind of thing can affect our ideas of sex and consent and what sex should look like and I think we'd be remiss if we didn't touch lightly on normal people which came out in 2020 perfect pandemic time when everyone was shut up at home and had nothing to do but watch tv and it was so cataclysmic and so huge and became such a huge pop culture talking point not not just here but also abroad there's one great quote from the cut in america that said consider watching normal people alone and with a vibrator um (laughs) not only that there was also a lot of kind of negative backlash i'm sure you remember the joe duffy incident oh yeah how could i ever forget it um, I've, I've pulled some choice quotes, if you don't mind me reading out a couple oh, of please, callers, yeah. just to cast your mind back. Um, so we have some quotes from some Joe Duffy callers, uh, something you would expect to see in a porno movie. Um, yeah, yeah. I wouldn't like a daughter of mine to be engaging in sexual promiscuity before she gets married. Uh, yeah, uh, we have every parent that has teenage daughters or sons would cringe watching that. Um, apparently it's sexualizing our, our young people. It's not normal. So not normal oh, at all. That's a good pun. Yeah. yeah, and also promiscuity is the new normal. So um, I was wondering, did you feel maybe the same pressure, maybe in a way, to meet the same ex- expectations for conversations with friends? Like, did you almost want to be like, I want to make it up to another episode of Joe Duffy? Well, you know, I just think the first time it happened, it was such a kind of spontaneous moment. I mean, it, like it may well happen again because you know there's plenty of intimacy and like sex is a big central component of conversations with friends in the way that it was with normal people. And, and it is like, of course it is because it's a huge central part of every single person's life, whether they're sexually active or not at a given moment. Um, and, but Sally doesn't shy away from that. And she's really interested in people's kind of relationships with others in, in, in all dimensions, physical and emotional and intellectual. So yeah, there's, there's plenty for people to get um, outraged by in conversations, but I think it, like, it, it'll be hard to top the first time because nobody saw it coming. Like this time it will be, everybody's waiting to see if people ring up Joe Duffy and while it will be fun, um, it wouldn't have quite that kind of iconic moment. I just remember the afternoon because uh, suddenly my phone lighting up with people saying, just switch on RTE1 
you know, and then switching it on and just hearing this kind of what felt to me like, because I'm like old enough to remember when those kinds of calls and that attitude to um, sex and sexuality was the norm in Ireland. You know, it wasn't like a, a sort of, whereas this was a sort of almost nostalgic for me to hear um, that because I, I was able to listen to it without, without the sense that it was the active force, the most active kind of component of the, uh, of the society around me. It was just this marginal group of people still very dedicated to a kind of right wing um, Catholic attitude to, to the body. But, uh, but, but, but it's hard to know really. I mean, cause the, the other thing about, about conversation with friends as opposed to normal people's normal people was very like uh, the, the central relationship was a heterosexual relationship. And in, in conversations with friends, you have, uh, you have that, you have a kind of relationship between Francis and Nick, but you also have a relationship with between Francis and Bobby, her, her best friend and ex lover. And, um, and they, you know, th there's this kind of um, their story there as well. And I can quite easily imagine um, that pushing those same callers to new heights of outrage, <laughs> you know, and that would be interesting to hear how that's discussed, I suppose, um, nationally. Yeah, because that, that's the thing. It was, it was kind of surprising, but then also not. It was like disappointing, but not surprising. Like, did you... Did you maybe expect is that much backlash from older audiences? And I'm wondering, like, did it show a real discrepancy maybe between how young pe young Irish people and older Irish people think about sex? Or is it just kind of a case of the most outraged group speaking the loudest? Yeah, I think it's more the latter, because like what was amazing about the response to normal people was that it really was watched by a very wide audience, you know, from um people of the age of the characters you know right up to much much older people and with real there was huge positivity like my mum's in her mid-80s now you know she wouldn't be sort of a typical like she's you know she's from a different kind of background and that she's Jewish etc and wouldn't have had that same Catholic upbringing but but like lots of people I know and parents of lots of people that I know were incredibly positive about the show and really felt I think a sense that many people felt uh, just wishing that their world when they were that age could have contained like sort of you know stories like that with with a kind of positive attitude to sexuality which I think is the thing that Sally really does very effortlessly in her novels like sexuality and sex was always problematized in in our literature you know and actually literature generally and and movies where um it's usually a locus for like you know either social or personal trauma or or kind of fracture you know and what's amazing about sally's work i think and hopefully we've we've truthfully represented it is just even though there are this great challenges in people's lives and they can be in their intimate lives as well like the the idea of like just the joy that's possible in a in an open sexual relationship is not uh, it's not questioned. And I think that's incredibly healthy. But I do think older Irish people generally <clears throat> are very um, on this, are, are very much on that same page. And that what you heard on the show was what is still now, a, I mean, I'm, I worry now because of course you're looking at the National Maternity Hospital and you're looking at some of the responses to that disaster of what's happened there. <clears throat> and you think, well, it, you know, there's a, there's a, 
there is still a cohort and you worry that if, when the pendulum politically swings back the other way, how big would that get again? I don't think we've seen the last of it. But I think it's okay at this particular moment in history to feel out, to sort of take a breather and go, for now, that's still not an, a very um, muscularly kind of kind of powerful group in our in our society. So on, I suppose, the topic of sex, Lenny. So there is, of course, Conal and Marianne and their lovely consensual exploration of each other. But normal people does deal to some extent with kinky sexuality. With yes. And um, trying yeah. to decide about her own relationship to rough sex, to kinky sex. And then yes. with friends is dealing with non-monogamy. Um, yes. So can you talk about, I suppose, delving into those themes on yeah. the screen in relationship to this? I mean, I, I would say that... I think I suspect what Sally's trying to do in normal people in that in the Jamie relationship, right, which is the one which is kinky and contains a kind of subdom dynamic, right, is question is use it to investigate Francis's own feelings of kind of discomfort with herself and issues around the kind of bullying she received in her family. And I think it's tricky. Because actually there is a danger that it makes it seem like any, I don't think this is what Sally's doing, but I think we have to be try and be very careful with it because like what you're showing then is, is, is the kinkiness of her relationship with Jamie as a, a sort of a, a symbolic of, of like dysfunction and damage and whatever. And I don't think that that's the case in most kinky relationships. I think kinks are very native to human beings and they're like, um, to be rejoiced in rather than kind of, um, they're not always an indication of some deep psychological, you know, they're often very healthy ways of actually working out kind of more complicated feelings, but turning them positive in a way. So I do think that is a tricky thing in normal people. And I think it's probably a tricky thing in our adaptation as well. And we tried to, to allow it to be itself in terms of what it was doing in the story, but I, I do I do feel like that that you know that's that particular story of somebody's relationship to King, which I don't like. In other words, I think what 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 when 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 Marianne asks Connell to hit her, right? I think there is possibly a road, and he freaks out. But I think there is a road there where, in a more kind of overt and mature version of themselves, a little bit older, there'd be a way in which they could play out some of those things that she feels in a way which was positive, you know? Um, but then looking at, so, so yeah, I think it's really important not to, not to think of, of all non-vanilla sex as some sort of uh, indicative of some pathology or something, it's, you know, and it, it's risky, but um, I suppose that's the danger with any piece of art. Like you, you, the, th the single thing is taken as representative of everything you know, and it's very hard not to have that happen. But then looking at conversations with friends and the issues of non-monogamy, I think there that's explored very well in, in the novel, you know, um, which is, it's just really asking that question. Is it right to assume that the only healthy relationship model is, is a monogamous one? And given that, you know, non-monogamy has always been arguably the norm in a sense that if you look at like you know how people behave in reality in their relationships it's just that it's been a sort of 
unethical non-monogamy you know in that it's just people cheating and not telling each other and treating each other badly but that's you know that that so so i think the the it, it, in the kind of contemporary thinking which obviously the right is just loves having a pop at um but actually it just takes seriously the reality of human sexuality which is that not everybody is happy in a in a lifelong monogamous uh relationship and that for and that there are ways and i really believe this like it's not that uh, so i believe the question can be answered yes it is there are circumstances where people can be very happy and where it can be really good for people to have certain kinds of freedoms within relationships that are agreed by both or all three or however many that allows that to work and i don't know why that's so threatening to people because nobody's saying you have to and um it's not it's not being done for the sake of some sort of performative wokeness it's just a recognition of how people really are and actually i think i mean i'm no expert on this stuff but but obviously thought a lot about it through conversations with friends and have um and always been interested in this kind of part of people um even within a relationship that remains monogamous the recognition of other des of desires that point outside that relationship is incredibly healthy because certainly the fiction that you're just so madly in love that other people don't even exist sexually which is sort of like the the rom-com norm you know is so bonkers and i don't think i think all like the other feeling i have as i get older i suppose is that all really good sexual relationships are based on a kind of openness and honesty between the people like that is, and, and, and it goes right back to the question of consent that we started with, which is like, because the, con the concern you would get from, you know, a more traditional approach, a more traditional attitude to like what makes something sexy, to use that word, is that it has to be kind of wordless and kind of grunty and sort of like immediate and you can't, nobody can stop themselves, right? But actually, and that if, if you have to sort of, in quotes, stop, and you know take it in their heads like take a contract out and both examine the terms and then sign it that's obviously going to switch off all desire but actually i think what we managed to achieve uh, in normal people was a scene of explicit consent being being kind of negotiated which in which actually was part of the moment and not like some some you know let's step outside the the the, the bedroom and, and and you know go to our lawyer's office or something no, completely, Lenny. And I think one thing that was so striking was how simple it was and how it wasn't, it was maybe like a touch awkward, but that's because it was more like young people having sex, not because the actual conversation around consent is awkward. And yeah. I really loved how that was just a part and parcel of the conversation between two young people. And it was a much more realistic as you, it wasn't, I'm going to throw you down on the couch and it wasn't like the music swelling. It wasn't the, the depictions of really passionate young love that we usually see, but it didn't make it any less intimate and any exactly. less like, endearing. And one thing actually, just that you mentioned a bit there that I wanted to touch on and it got me thinking was about how, yeah, whenever Marianne wants uh, Connell to hit her and then, you know, like showing her relationship with Jamie that it's not even so much the kink, but I think it's it's like the power is the issue that yes. maybe made people uncomfortable with and made, makes Connell so uncomfortable that Marianne is so willing to give all her power to him. Yes. And he is clearly uncomfortable holding that. And I think that's something that is always in Sally Rooney's work. It's just the power dynamics of relationships. 
And I think it's even more interesting in conversations with friends because there's so many, there's Bobby and Francis, there's Nick and Melissa and their relationship. And that obviously both Nick and Francis are maybe the quieter one in a dynamic with a very vivacious woman on the other side of things. But then between Francis and Nick as well, then there's a power dynamic of like, well, he's older, he's much wealthier than her. He's much more established, he's married. And but then at the same time, Francis seems to be the one that's instigating the relationship. She kind of kisses him. She's the one that wants to go to his house the first time around. And absolutely. There's the element of maybe him perceiving her as having more power because, oh, she's younger and she sees me in this certain light. And just wondering how because of so much of the tension that comes with those power dynamics in Sally Rooney's work is very subtle. Like, what was it like trying to translate that then to the screen that you did so well in Normal People? It was really hard and it was it was hard right from the process of a- adapting because what you say is absolutely right. You, you, you can't just like what when normal people, you know that once you bring these two people together, that will like there's such a sort of en- engine of forward momentum in their relationship. Like what is going to happen between those two people who clearly love each other? Right. That's and we all understand that in conversations with friends, you've got all these different sort of elements that you're kind of keeping in the air at the same time. And they've got to be done delicately and so lightly that nothing dominates. Because I think like, even just from a, a storytelling point of view, le- leaving aside the, the the gender dynamics or anything or the, or, or, or the power dynamics of this, which I'll get back to, if you think about it, Bobby and Francis at the beginning of the story are in kind of, static holding pattern with each other like this we tried to show just that there's something there that isn't resolved but that's but other than that they really they clearly are deeply connected to each other really close so what happens then the happening part comes from the arrival of nick and melissa right and particularly this this kind of thing that begins to fire up between francis and nick the real danger was that like from a storytelling point of view everybody in an audience is always looking for the thing that changes everything. That's the story starts, right? You know, typically you find somebody in their life and then something occurs. And um, how do you stop that becoming the center of gravity for the whole show? You know, and, and then the worry is every time you're not with Francis and Nick, the audience are going, well, let's get back to their story. And I think for us trying to show, like trying to do it delicately enough that everybody is floating in this kind of, so rather than big forces sort of clashing together, it's more like the idea of these people floating very close to each other. And then these small elements of push and pull moving people like, like astronauts sort of on a spacewalk. That's, that's kind of my image of it, which also is one of the reasons why we will get pushback in some quarters critically, because it is to tell this story. That's what you've got to do. It has to be delicate, slow, observational and all that. And I'm really, we're all really proud of that. And I think audiences get it as well, judging by the reactions. But yes, so so this this thing, I think unless you have everybody so sort of delicately poised that you can feel these subtle shifts, it just wouldn't work. And your analysis is brilliant. Like it's exactly that, that you have, a, it's like this kind of almost intersectional like power grid so that from the point of view of age and age and start being established on money, Nick has this relationship. He's the powerful one in one sense. But then when you look at them psychologically, you realize that all of the force of 
like progressing this relationship is coming from Francis. And, and she is deeply shy and self-conscious in one sense, but there's a kind of power and, and an arrogance in her, which like has her take these crazy risks, you know, go to Croatia, uh, go to um, say that I should, we should see, we should talk about this in person sometime to Nick, like all of these things, she makes all the running. And then with Melissa, who is in one sense, Francis is deeply jealous of and, um, and also kind of wants to be critical of for, for you know, her own kind of psychological reasons. Francis feels very much that Melissa has the power. She's the, she already is Nick's other half. She's got an established career, but you learn towards the end really just how undermined Melissa is by this kind of questioning quietness that she feels from Francis and makes her ana analyze all her own choices right down to how she decorates her house you know, that makes her feel sort of like she's being judged as a kind of bourgeois by Francis. And then within Bobby and Francis, Francis feels that Bobby is the powerful one. She, she, see, she feels that so much she, that she entirely misses that she's the one with the power in the relationship and she's the one who's been effectively keeping Bobby in this box, this idealized, of this sort of idealized version of herself. And so you're absolutely right. It is, in, it is massively about those dynamics of power which Sally is is so interested in and it's really I, I I went you know when you see the whole thing be really interested to know your thoughts but I do feel that that there is emotion in the whole thing which does sort of move all of the characters into a better uh kind of orientation a better relationship with themselves at the end and and that's that's another good thing about Sally, which I'm very unfamiliar with the idea of like positive stories. You know, I, I kind of all of my stuff tends to be incredibly pessimistic, or at least a lot of it is. Um, but I like the fact that she sees a kind of possibility of transformation and of and of, and of sort of self um, transcendence, you know, in her in her writing. I think like that's. There's so much for that in, in the power dynamic part because sex is not always so simple. Like you do have to take those power dynamics and, and, you know, gender into account as well. But what I think your work is really good at as well is looking at that intersection between sex and class. You know, it's yes. gone through some of your films and some of the stuff that you've directed for series. And I just think that's really important to have a look at that as well. Like you've gone from South Dublin and Trinity and yeah, not as much sex in Adam and Paul or Adam and Joe. But, yeah. um, you know, it, it's still like looking at that topic of class. And I think maybe we're not as comfortable talking about that aspect of, of sex. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, because class is this. And I haven't thought about this until in this way until you ask the question, but class really is this extraordinary construct, which is absolutely about power and, and hierarchy, you know, but it's also kind of about, about like, there is a body dimension to it. And I can't, it's very hard to define, but the idea that the middle-class person is somehow actually smoother or something compared to the working class person in that kind of in that kind of unreconstructed attitude towards class which is well we use class to mean all sorts of things we use it to mean um you know sophistication um like beautiful manufacture of something is classy like that the whole idea of 
uh, 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 it's not just power. It if you internalize those class dynamics, you internalize a certain view of yourself as like a, a, as a physical pr presence in the world and and, and your worth, which is in, inherently feeds into how sex works. Um, that's really interesting. Um, but I yeah, I have been really interested in in in, in class always, and it was really important to me having made like the two first films, Adam and Paul and Garage, it was like, um, they were films about people very much socially on the margins, one in a rural context, one in, ur in an urban. And I think I didn't want to be pigeonholed as a sort of, um, like it's just a kind of crude social realism where you're going, um, that that's my those are my topics. Like, I think you've got to be able to talk about, like that's why I wanted to make what Richard did because I wanted to show a person in 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 the other in the middle like right in the middle class central middle class or upper middle class and show them kind of deep being deconstructed as well and because you can't talk about um you have to talk about all of it you can't just talk about one bit of it to get some kind of understanding i think oh, i think yeah that's really and i think that's why a lot of your work, I think, has that universal appeal, because there's so much there and we don't often get that chance to experience class in those kind of terms as well. So it appeals like across that sector. It's not just, um, you know, like that the gender power dynamic, which is what a lot of content does focus on for, for obvious yes, reasons true. as well. But even like with Room, you know, like you, um, you're Oscar nominated for, um, I think that's really important. She's not even in society, like she's locked up in that room and, and again, being a victim of such horrific violence, like she's very much on the margins. Like how, how did that feel to direct something like that because it's not the fun normal people stuff no um, you know no. it's really dark i think the thing that kind of saved us all while we were making that film was the fact that we had this child in the middle of it because if you take a step away from the film itself and just in, into the making of like the actual community of people that are involved in making it you just couldn't sink too far into the into the darkness of the story because you always had to, you always had this, you had this incredibly happy and bright boy in the middle of it all, Jake Tremblay, for whom this was just fun. I mean, you know, he didn't, we were very careful that he, he his understanding of the story was sort of age appropriate. Like in his head, it's a fairy tale where a bad person steals good people and keeps them, you know, sexual dimension and the sexual abuse was not like in his head. And so in a way on set, that was the kind of, that helped us. But it was very, you know, it was very dark and Brie particularly had to really go into herself to find the response to what she was, her character was experiencing. And what you find with really good actors is, at least my version of what it means to be a really good actor is the ability to do that quite lightly so that she didn't walk around as that character all day and, you know, she didn't stay in character. She, but she could go find it, go right deep into it and then come right back out and sort of go, well, what do you think of that? How was that? As opposed to, you know, I need to, you know, be in that space for the whole, you know, whatever. She wasn't Jared Leto weeks. playing. She wasn't like, Jared Leto. No method acting on your no. set. No method acting alive. No, I'm not a fan, <laughs> you know, because I just feel like it's like a driving a juggernaut or like a big ship it, with a method actor. It's very hard to turn them around because all of the research and all of the stuff has gone into building the weight 
And then I like to discover things on the day. I like to, I like us all to be light in our feet and go, why isn't this working? And if a method actor has to go and construct an entirely new, you know, journey to that moment, it's very, it's very hard going. But yeah, um, you know, and it's funny because I am like, I'm working on something at the moment. I'm thinking about something, which is like a kind of relating to my own family and, and my own kind of childhood and and things and and so it does it's located in the middle classes but it's very much about what it does to a person to to grow up with an idea of them being of them and their family being good like i i'm really interested in this i've interested since what richard did you know the idea of the person who is well regarded like who's used to being the one everybody likes and has been kind of trained to believe that they have a kind of noble calling to benefit the rest of society. Like it's that, it's that, it's that kind of like imperial idealism that you got in like public schools in Britain, which is that, yes, you are at the top of the heap and you do have privileges, but, but that's because you then get to go out and be magnificent for everybody else's benefit, you know, and any kind of mythology around value in a family around like being you know, impressive as a family or which, which does operate in the middle classes because the middle classes are constantly concerned with their status because there is the fear of falling or, you know, and I, I'm really interested in what that does to the psychology of a person growing up in that and, and the kind of self, like the destructiveness that, that can have. And, and it's really important. Like, of course, there are different degrees of, of difficulty. Like that's um, still way preferable than being in a situation where you don't have enough to eat or you can't look after your family. It's not like I'm trying, it's not special pleading for the middle classes, but it's understanding what the kind of dynamics of a society that is a, still ultimately class divided, what does that do to, to warp the society as a whole? And how is that warping manifested even in its privileged sections you know uh, so yeah i am i'm really interested in that and then uh you know and and i think having having kind of gone and looked at intimacy in a largely positive way it's been really helpful and, and i feel like i'll be able to go back to the more problematic experiences of it but with a deeper kind of sense of of what's possible. So we're talking a lot about the intersection of sexuality with all kinds of different identities. And something that I feel like is really, you know, struck me from the first episode of Normal People and that doesn't, I think, get talked about enough is the incredible representation of Ireland as it is now in terms of racial and ethnic diversity. Yes. Characters like Philip, um, played by Kwaku Fortune, and Kiernan and Clinton Liberty, um, the choice to cast Lucas as, as an immigrant of color in, in Belgium, mm. and so on. And now we have Sasha Lane as Melissa in Conversations with Friends. So I would love to hear you um, yeah. speak a little bit about race, ethnicity, sexuality in sure. the series. I mean, like everybody else, I feel like I've been on a kind of uh, journey of, uh, you know, of recognizing, like I would always have been very aware of, of racism, racist attitudes of, of, and I would have felt like always felt I was on the right side of history 
you know, in terms of my attitudes. However, when you look at yourself historically, and when you get to my age, you've been around for a while, I recognize that I still had, you know, as a much younger person, I had not thought deeply about either gender um, imbalances or our attitudes to um, like to race and to ethnicity. Um, and, and I feel like having now all of us come through period where we've really like centered those, that those debates and that, that those discussions have become culturally central. I feel like, um, like all of the people that I work with that I want to do, we all wanted to do better. And, um, you know, because also, because that's the reality. It's not like it's recognizing, and it's actually about disability as well. It's about all these other areas to just recognize the fact that you live in a society where there are these kinds of assumptions of what the norm is and, and representation on screen is all about that. Right. Cause you know, like what you choose to do there is a kind of, you know, somebody walks down the street, who's that somebody, if you're reading a script, what, what, what do they look like? You assume largely that they're of the most majority, you know, first of all, the assumption used to be always that the central character would be a male, unless there was a reason for a specifically gendered reason. I think that's, all of this is really crumbling, which is great. But, um, so, so for me, it's like, ha, ha, the, the primary kind of question is how do you truthfully reflect the society that you're in? And also, and depending on the project, I'd love to go back to that depending because it's really, it's a really interesting one. Um, there is an opportunity in what we do to like push representation so that you are, you will eventually shift a broader public conception of who we are. Right. I mean, I remember, and it really, the, the one thing that I remember very clearly, um, that, that really informs my way of thinking about how this stuff works now, was that back in the 90s, the like early-ish 90s, I went to Stanford uh, University as a philosophy grad. And that's, I was sort of in that, I was kind of half in that world and half started, had started to make short films. But I went to California and California was ahead of, like in terms of the people that I was in college with, they were ahead of where we were in Dublin in the early 90s, right? And I remember one student was reading a paper. And in philosophy, you do all these kind of thought experiments. Like, you know, a person experiences this. And, and this, this guy, who was like my classmate, used she as the, as the assumed pronoun. And I remember thinking to myself, oh, God, that's so sort of like, we know that he is just a convention. It's not like it really means anything. That's just so kind of, it just jars. It just felt like... Oh, he's just trying to be, I mean, I didn't have the word woke back then, but you can imagine somebody thinking that. And now it's completely, um, it sits on my ear with no jarring whatsoever. And I think it's also really important. Something small like that is really important because there is no reason to make that assumption about gender always being male when it's uncertain, you know, when it's a, a sort of an example like that. And it really changes how you think about people it genuinely does so language matters but similarly with representation sometimes you have to start by doing something which you know to be true 
but which feels like, oh, are we just doing it to look, you know, why are we doing this? Is it that important? Does it sort of, and the answer is yes, it is that important. And it really does make a difference. And actually after a while, it becomes completely, it's like gender balance panels. Like, you, you know, it's very easy to make the argument, oh, look, come on, it's just, you know, whoever's right for it will blah, blah. You can say as much as you like, but the optics of seeing like five guys on a stage, you know, it just, it, it doesn't work anymore. And it's right that it doesn't work anymore. So I feel like the same with, with ethnicity in Ireland. Like we really are living in a much more multicultural society than is represented on screen. And also actually the other thing is disability, which is even more, um, there's even more of a gap in, in the, and class is the other, right? So now the thing is where I said depends before, it's because it's a big, big onus to put on an individual artist on an individual project. So you can't solve every problem, you, you, you know, for example, like there are really very specific things that one might imagine, or there are types of filmmakers or artists who are just pursuing this and it's awkward and it's difficult. And you go, I like, it is possible. There are circumstances I think where it can look like you're just leveraging in a sort of, um, like a, a kind of diversity, which which is which doesn't fit. But I think the only reason why that is a pressure now is because in the main we haven't got it right. Like I think if we were in a situation where actually this was not an issue where people were reflected as they are in the society, then a show which involved like three white men would be fine because that's such circumstances exist, right? You know, and it's a bit like. Um, it's a, and, and the other, so just to sort of complete this. So when it came to, you know, particularly with um, conversations, we were really keen that, that our four leads, would, there would be diversity there. And then you come up against this thing, which is you're casting and it's really, really hard to find cast, right? And I, I saw something on Twitter, somebody going, oh, why don't they cast Irish actors to play Irish roles? And I would absolutely love to, but if you look at Hollywood where they have, a thousand million squillion people who want to act in the States in a country of 500 million, they still cast British people, Australians, you know, because it's hard to find the people who are just, there aren't that many Sasha Lanes or Alison Oliver's out there as actors. So I felt really privileged and lucky that Sasha uh, was interested in playing Bobby because she's so fabulous and she is my absolutely ideal Bobby. And there is no kind of, um, there is no tokenism in how we cast the show at all. I can say that hand on heart. Um, but so that's the challenge. The challenge is to find people who are actually right, but also who represent the society that you're in more truthfully than, I mean, one other thing, and this is like, I'm really interested in this for future projects of mine, like really sort of ultimately quite hardcore ideas, not, not in terms of like content, but just like, in terms of not compromising in any way. Um, attractiveness is another complete, like you just look at your average TV show versus the world. And why do why do we have why do all our lead characters have to be gorgeous? Like what what you know, there's a whole, there's a whole like uh, there is a sort of anti anti-aesthetic approach to filmmaking that I'm personally really interested in. Anyway, this is it's totally different. Um, 
a different topic but but yeah so i feel like it, it it's really important and that the but the only way of getting this diversity to um to really solving the problem of both in front of and behind the camera having diversity in terms of ethnicity gender sexuality disability class is by not accepting the well let's just go for the best person for the job laziness because actually unless you push from both sides unless you open things up via education say going into schools where people would not traditionally choose a job choose a career in the film industry or um in either in front of or behind the camera because their career guidance teachers don't realize actually how big the industry is or their traditions in that school are not towards the arts or it's considered a middle class black all of those things deal with that have really um strong rules about um about like how you like mentorships um schemes which bring people in to the industry and then be really really look over your glasses at people who don't present diversity on screen and all of that pressure i think will gra gradually get us to the point i hope where it's just there and we don't notice it as a choice because it's just there because that's the way the world is. Yeah, and actually just touching on the casting of Sasha as Bobby, I thought watching it, it actually added a really interesting dynamic of her, not, not only just in terms of racial diversity of her being a woman of color, but the fact that she's American, she's from New York, she's worldly, and it adds this extra element to her dynamic Absolutely. with Frances. So Frances being from like a small Irish town and then this this really interesting worldly person just gets transplanted into her life. And then it adds this whole extra element to their dynamic Absolutely. of Bobby being the really, the loud one. The, I saw, I read a really interesting thing. I think it was on Vulture where it was like, Bobby walks around thinking she's the protagonist. And it's so funny because yeah, in the Sally Rooney story, it's often the quiet person that is the actual protagonist. And I just thought that added the fact that she's American as well and from New York, no less, adds a really interesting part. Completely. That you're exactly right. Like if you'd cast um, like her whole way of like a comet arriving into Francis's life, which is how it's described, really lent itself to somebody coming in from elsewhere. It meant that also she could play herself American because I really try to keep people as much as possible playing themselves. And, and you're right. And it's also really interesting because later in the show, we, there's a line where Bobby quotes back some stuff from the short story that Francis wrote about Bobby, didn't tell her about it. And, Bobby says, and she's talking about how slender Bobby's hands are and how she sometimes imagines how life would be if she was like Bobby and all this. And Bobby's outraged because she says, like, you know, is like my only role in life to walk around um, having a wonderful time, basically, in, in contrast to poor fucking you. And but there's also the thing that there's this added thing, which is that Francis does not allow Bobby the dignity of having actual problems. And, and I think in our head, we know that Bobby growing, like having the second half of her childhood in a kind of relatively mon monocultural Ireland as a person of color, like in a way, how dare Bob Francis think that Bobby is like blessed and somehow, you know, untroubled by any difficulties. It's like, and I think it does add, it does add that dimension. I mean, one, one other thing that, that's worth saying, like I led a project go recently because 
I felt like I wasn't the person to tell the story, you know, because it was centered on people with a very different background to me. And it's really complicated because on the one hand, you know, if you if you are like a filmmaker or whatever or a writer, you back your imagination and, and also imagination from outside can be a really, really interesting way of thinking about cultures if you're a little bit different, you know like my background is different and I think that helps me a little bit get perspective on the country that I'm in but I think at the moment we just have to like while it's still so unbalanced then I think you just have to step back and go some stories are not mine to tell and then in a in a in a future if we ever get to it where people are telling their stories right across the spectrum of of backgrounds and and histories and ethnicities then it is maybe interesting again for a kind of middle-class white guy to tell a story about somebody entirely from a different world, you know, then, but, but like at the moment, it's like, I think these things have to be sensitive to the moment that you're in, you know, which is why I feel like um, it's important to really push people to be thoughtful about diversity and all those versions of diversity in, 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 in filmmaking now. We, we spoke recently to um, Ida O'Brien and she, she was singing the praises of I May Destroy You, which is fantastic Amazing. for the representation of diversity. But just like you said, it's just another story that just needs to be added to the table. But obviously Ida's work, she was telling us about, you know, her work as an intimacy coordinator and how she sometimes has to, you know, battle maybe to get into the position and stuff. But you've worked with her quite a lot and yeah. you're, you're obviously switched on enough to know that you, you, you needed this coordinator to oh, do yeah. this work. And so what's it like from the director standpoint to work with the intimacy coordinator? I mean, I found it really liberating in the sense that, you know, we were really aware coming into normal people that we were going to be shooting these intimate scenes and that and that right with, with cast you're relatively young you know early 20s not the age of the characters but they're not that far away they're sort of in between the age of the characters at the start and the end of the story so we did a lot of thinking and this this role of intimacy coordinator was just becoming something a real thing at that time and we decided that we should explore it i think for me why it's so again it goes back to these ideas of power dynamics like People can work with intimacy coordinators in different way and in different ways. Like each is a, each is also a movement person, and that's really useful. I think my take, my view, my sort of approach is that I'm very much like I want to control the images. So like all those body shapes and how you do that, it still feels like that's something I have to kind of be across. But with each's input, so that she's telling, you know, she's got like ideas about about possible kind of ways of configuring people and, and, and running the scene. And that dialogue is really exciting. But just to go back to the, the power question, like the biggest difficulty if you shoot, I think for me, if I'm shooting an intimate scene, is if I'm working with, say, younger actors and I have a picture in my head of what, what might be interesting to do in the scene, I'm afraid that if I ask an actor to do something that they might just say yes because they don't want to disappoint me. That's the real, that like, and that's a real thing because like if you're an established director and somebody's working with you for the first time and they're early in their career and they really, really want that to be a good experience for them, but also for, you know, for the director, they want me to be happy. I don't want them to say, oh yeah, no, that's absolutely fine if they don't really feel it. And the, the, the other person present 
with Ita is great because she's like, she is constantly inviting the actor to say no. And constantly and reiterating with me that we really want to know if there's the tiniest bit of discomfort. And, and that means that then you actually have a con, con situation where you feel like you, you can have a full broad spectrum conversation about possibilities without any of that amounting to pressure. You know, that's so huge. And then like, there's just a whole bunch of stuff, which is about good practice, you know, like um, how you talk about the body. Like each is great about, you know, not using euphemisms or baby language or anything like that, just being, because what's that saying? It's saying, oh, we don't, we can't really approach this because it's, it's scary. Whereas if you call things what they are and you're like really kind of in a certain sense, really kind of um, practical, it's brilliant because you suddenly, it suddenly becomes like, you know, an artist painting a model and going, oh, you know, just actually, if you could just lift your arm there, or could, you know, and then, and then for the, for the actor, they become a participant in the making of these images rather than, and I think what Isha says is you're not, what the actor shouldn't feel is that they're being asked to model their own sexuality. In other words, they shouldn't be like, um, is that idea somehow in, and it's like really bad practices in the film industry over the decades, but this idea that like, you know, let's all have a few whiskeys and like, let it kind of happen. Not for real necessarily, although that has happened as well. But that to me is highly um, inappropriate because you, you know, there may be, and I know some actors who are really against intimacy coordinators who have that attitude. They want to, they're not afraid. I just want to, you know, I get it. That's fine if you're like that. But you don't know if the other actors like that. You don't know. And maybe the other actor doesn't want to say no because they'll, they'll, they're afraid to feel like, to look like they're a prude or something like that. So, and then just the mechanics, you know, like how do you actually pad people, you know, if the shot is from the waist up, how do we do it? If the shot's full body, how do we do it? What does, you know, and then like who's on set, what the, what the, what the protocols are for people on set around nudity. Like it just takes away a whole bunch of kind of chin scratching awkwardness that would have existed before. And that was at its best, you know, chin scratching awkwardness was, that was the good, that was the good people. I can imagine you know, you're the, trying to direct someone and saying, can you move your front bottom and can you put your, your exactly really here? Or, Everyone's like, what are you talking bum, about? Or you're like, it's just like, no, it's so great. And each is like, oh, she does like, she'll just go, you know, she's brilliant about stuff like that. You know, she'll go, mm, that was like, I'll, I'll look at it and I'll have an idea as well. But Ida will go, I'll say, I didn't really believe that. And Ida will go, that's because um, the, you know, he wasn't low enough down, didn't look like the penis was in the right position as, you know, in connection, you know, looks like, I don't know where, I don't know where it was supposed to be, but it wasn't in the right place. You know, and everybody goes, oh yeah, yeah. I have to look like I'm round and a bit under and oh, mm -hmm, yeah. And she's just looking at the, you know, She's like a, it, it's it's a sort of, it's absolutely without um, euphemism, you know, and I think that somehow that just makes everybody really relaxed. It's it's odd. You think it would be the other way. We ended up we did a lot of laughing. I mean, a lot of laughing, and and a lot and that you know led by cast, you know, and I feel like. Um, that's always a really good sign, you know, that it's sort of because it is a ridiculous way to spend your Tuesday afternoon or whatever it is. 
Like I always used to, at the exact kind of moment of like, I'd always say things like, oh, what did you do at work today, dad? And stuff like that, you know, because it'd be like people in all sorts of configurations and us kind of looking around through a viewfinder and going, you know, but actually you can allow it to be sort of funny and, and relaxed in that way. Once everybody feels safe, that's what, that's what happens. That's a big part of our work as well, that like you can have the humor in this because sex is fun. And that's why a lot of people absolutely do actually choose to have sex. So the, the fun part, we absolutely celebrate you for doing yeah. that. So thank you so much. And yeah, thank you so much for joining today. I think this could be like a three hour podcast. But no, like, it's brilliant. It's really enjoyed thank it. You. We'll have you back for, for the next thing. What's next now after after you well, breathe, after conversations? After I breathe, friends? I'm going to do some writing and um, whether I make the thing that I'm writing next or I'd like to, I think I'd like to do a film because it's two television shows in a row and there's something very nice about telling one story you know like it is one story in a tv show but it's in it's episodic and it's it's different so I'd like to make a film but I don't know at the moment what that will be okay well enjoy the well-deserved break in between for that thank you very much well needed thank you so much and do you have a twitter or an instagram that people can follow along with you on so um I'm just at Lenny Abrahamson on on twitter um and I do tweet a bit uh so yeah absolutely and um and keep up the great work it's uh great stuff thank you thank you so much and alex our social media um yeah so people can keep up with the green live podcast on the active consent social media channel so that's act active at active consent on facebook instagram and twitter and you can also keep up to date on consenthub.ie where not only do we have episodes of green life podcast we also have all our learning materials learning resources and just any information about consent for educators young people parents you name it so you can keep up to date with us there brilliant and we hope everyone enjoyed this have a look back through all those previous episodes and we look forward to joining you for future episodes so mind yourselves and see you soon